0: Hey, everybody. Discount. Discount. I got a discount. You Are What You Read is brought to you by Book of the Month. And our friends at Book of the Month want you to enjoy some of their fabulous titles for just $9.99. As a Book of the Month member, I love getting that blue box of books each month filled with my selections. Sometimes I get a thriller, other times a romance. Oh, I love it. Historical fiction, memoirs, classics, you name it. Book of the Month has a book just for you, and it's delivered right to your door. When you become a Book of the Month member, you join a community of readers just like you. I'm a fan of Book of the Month app, where I can rate and review books, listen to podcasts and audiobooks, and browse hundreds of titles to add to my monthly box. The app makes your membership benefits easily accessible and enjoyable, all at your fingertips. Now back to the discount, you can head to bookofthemonth.com and use code ADRI, that's right, A-D-R-I at checkout to get your first book for $9.99. That's A-D-R-I at checkout. Thank you, Book of the Month. The magnificent Isabel Allende is an international sensation and her writing is beloved around the world. She's the author of over 27 books translated into 42 languages. Isabel has graced us with stories for decades, including, oh, these great books, Violeta, A Long Petal of the Sea, The House of the Spirits, Of Love and Shadows, Eva Luna, and Paula. She was awarded the Chilean National Prize in Literature in 2010. The United States Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2014 and the Penn Center USA's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. In this week's conversation, and it's a doozy, we follow Isabel's journey from Peru to Chile to Venezuela to America, and we're going to revisit lots of family and many friends along the way.
1: I was born in Peru, and they say that my gra- my my father, whom I don't remember at all because he left the family when I was three, would read to me. And he uh, wanted me to identify the paintings in an art book. So he would read about the, the painter, and I would, at three, be. he would say, for example, Vermeer, and I would go to the page where Vermeer was. That, that according to my mother, was what my father would do with me. And he also wanted me to identify music. Of course, all that ended when we went back to Chile to live in my grandfather's house where my mother was a charity case, and uh, she was sick most of the time and didn't have time or inclination to read to us, but she would tell us stories at night. I had an uncle, Tio Pablo, and my uncle Pablo collected books, he stole books from public libraries and from his friends' houses, and he had a very large black coat with big pockets where he would steal the books. And he considered that books were, um, books belong to humanity. And so you couldn't really own your book unless it was your book, because he wouldn't lend his books, and he wouldn't allow anybody to touch them. I don't think that he made a point of buying children's books for me, but he taught me to read when I was five. So I started reading very early. There was a basement in my grandfather's house where children were forbidden to go because, you know, all the electric cables were hanging there, and there was humidity and water spill. So you could have died electrocuted in there. But that was the place where I would hide. It would be my refuge, my little universe. In there, there was a large metallic green trunk and inside was full of books and uh, books for children, Um, not for children, for young adults, Oscar Wilde, Dickens, uh, you name them. And and of course, also Salgari, which was a Spanish, I think he was Spanish writer or Italian, I don't remember, but the books were in Spanish. So I, I read all that. And much later, I realized that the trunk was marked T.A. And that was my father's name, Tomás Allende. So the legacy that I had from my father, the only thing I received from him were these wonderful books that really painted in bright colors my very somber childhood. And I think those books gave me forever the love of storytelling, the love of listening to stories and making them up. I would sometimes read a book and then stop in the middle and pick another one and put both stories together to see if how could I blend those stories and make something new or change the endings. And I was a very solitary child, um, the only girl in, in this household of males. And um I didn't have many friends. We were not allowed, I was not allowed in the street either to, play, to bike with other kids or any of that. It was, there was no television at that time. We were never taken to the movies. So reading was the only thing we could do. I could do. My brothers were playing ball, I suppose, but I was reading.
0: If I had to guess, I would have guessed this because I've, I've never heard you speak of that trunk in that basement and, and that you had a place where you went that was your refuge, your solace. It also taught you to self-soothe, which is to me, whenever I meet an author or a writer, they're very good at being alone. Yeah, And we have a hard time incorporating people into our lives, but we're gonna get to the romance part of your life (laughs) in a moment. Because there's a lot of wind up to this that I found so fascinating. When you talked about dual timelines, In all your books, they are richly embroidered and crafted and layered, richly. And in The Wind Knows My Name, we're in Austria in 1938, but you pulled the thread almost as a cautionary story, fairy tale, fable, allegory. You pull this thread to the United States and the trouble at the border. And the way we don't welcome, or we have not yet figured out, that the immigrant is our power it's our superpower the immigrant is truly the superpower now nobody's a better advertisement for what we're talking about than you can you speak to how this came together in your imagination where you where you saw the kinder transport as a as a way into the story of today
1: you know really i don't remember how it started uh, it all started with a little girl with Anita, because I have a foundation and my foundation works at the border. And among the hundreds, thousands of cases that we've witnessed, there was the case of this little girl who was blind and was separated from the mother. And I could put myself in the place of that little girl in an unknown country where she doesn't speak the language, where she has been separated from her grandmother and her family, and now separated from the mother, and is placed in a place where nobody knows who she is, she's a number. She doesn't have a name. And she finds refuge, as I did in the basement of my grandfather. She finds refuge in an invented universe in which she has some control over her life. In the, in the real story, in the, the real case, Anita was reunited. The, the girl was called Juliana. And she was reunited eventually with her mother after eight months. And they ended up in front of a judge who deported them both to Mexico where they got lost and we lost track of them and we never heard of them again. This was in nineteen twenty in 2020. So uh, the case of Anita, because she was blind, was, was so impressive to me, so, so awful in many ways that uh, I knew I was going to write about that sooner or later. And by chance, absolute chance, uh, one day, I turned on the TV, and they were interviewing the few survivors of the Kinder transport—three or four very old people, most of mm-hmm. them in New York—who mm-hmm. had been the kids transported to England from Germany or other countries in Europe. Jewish children. I remember this. You remember the documentary? I absolutely do. Yeah, and I also went
0: to the play you went to. Oh, you did. Transfer, which yeah. sparked you. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: So then when I saw the documentary, I remembered the play that I had seen before. And then I started researching about that and I realized that the similarities were impressive. And so I, uh, the, I the connection came so natural because I could have made the connection with other cases in which children are separated from their parents. For example, indigenous children that were taken away from the Families, or uh, in Ireland, uh, the children that were taken away from, from single mothers, or in times of slavery, children that were sold out uh, and taken from their mothers also. So, there are many instances in, in the world and in history in which this horrible thing has happened. And maybe it will continue to happen, who knows?
0: Well, it, it seems like history keeps repeating itself, doesn't it? We don't fix the problems. But what I see in your work, Isabel, is this sense of time. There's always time, that there's not enough time, and it's the time that isn't spent in the way perhaps that it should be to fix the problem, to solve the problems, to open up the door. And you have a thing, I've noticed in your lifetime, every 10 years, there's something you change. You oh, almost I into I have next not
1: noticed that
0: I <laughs> have I have noticed that How come? and I I kind of tracked your no your your marriages, your children and these key moments in your life and they're about 10 years 7 to 10 years apart where you reinvent. Now when you I want to go back to when you were a journalist because you you really when you have uh, talked about this before People want to know when you became a novelist, and you felt like you got there late. For me, you got there just at the right moment because you had worked as a journalist, which I think is some of the most difficult writing that someone can do. But
1: it's a great training, great training, Adriana. It is. You have to
0: learn how to write. You have to shrink it. You have to be direct. You have to tell the who, what, when, where, and why. So you have that... Incredible foundation. Well, I think the trunk in the basement is the foundation, (laughs) but it really is because to study the classics at such a young age and read them and be, I can see in your work, I can track that, the deeply, deeply personal work. But to be a journalist, you were a journalist in perilous times. You really were.
1: Not really. You don't think so? No, because I was a journalist before the military coup. All right. Okay. I started okay. I, I started writing as a journalist in nineteen sixty seven and and the coup was in nineteen seventy three. And then is when things got really, really dark.
0: South America, just the continent. I try to have this conversation with people that can change things, and I always ask this question Is it the political environments in these gorgeous countries with these Gorgeous oceans and natural resources and indigenous people. Every gift that you have on planet Earth is in South America, in all the countries you're from and have been through. What's the problem, Isabel? Why why is South America not leading the world in everything?
1: We are too close to the United States. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, the CIA you, has, inter, has intervened dramatically
0: in South America. That's so interesting. That wasn't the answer I was expecting. What were you expecting? That's very interesting. Well, I thought that you were going to say that you know politically. Well, you did say it. If it's you're saying the CIA politically, the good people have not been able to get out from under these dictators.
1: Well, politically, we have had a lot of upheaval and caudillos, uh, the, the chieftains that take over and the corrupt military and all that. And also the social classes, the form, the way the societies were formed since the times of the colony by the, by the Spanish and Portuguese empires in which there was this class difference and the, and the ex- terrible exploitation of the indigenous people and the resources, all that leaves a lot of scars in, in, in the continent. And we have slowly evolved to get sort of free of the dictatorships, but it's very recent. Um, so there is a lot of that. But um, when you compare Latin America to any other place except probably Northern Europe, the problems that we have are similar in other places. They sort of sure. look more, uh, more striking, but they are similar. I mean, yes, what, yes. We, we have horrible problems in the United States that are similar.
0: Of course, of course. You rail against the patriarchy in your books in your very subtle, beautiful way. No subtlety, no subtlety. (laughs) Ah, Well, that's, I think, where the magical realism comes in and the romance and the great sex and a woman empowered (laughs) through her circumstances. I mean, you do it like nobody does it, Isabel, (laughs) because you're really fighting the bigger notion here that
1: why are women held back? Well, it's thousands and thousands of years of patriarchy. What sustains the patriarchy is power. And power is held by fear, by guilt, and by the by weapons. And it's power of the strong men against the weak men and of every man against women. There's a war against women and against girls. Absolutely. And, and there's a war. And if you look at history, the way women have been silenced uh, the the women exploited dominated uh, exterminated in some cases held back in every possible way for fear that they will do better than men and when they are given a chance they do and that is unforgivable
0: this is what i said to my daughter isabel she she couldn't understand it with 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 boys and i said they want to win that's all you need to know yeah if you understand They want to win. And you just said it in a more beautiful way than I ever could. One of the things that I cling to in your past that I think is, you saw that your grandfather, he had a car, he had the career, he made the decisions, he owned the house, and you saw when you moved in with your mom, oh, what you saw that power grid, but you wanted to be him, didn't you?
1: Yeah, because... Uh, My mom had no power at all, and she had no money, no resources. My mother was, as I said before, a charity case. She married against her father's wishes. She married the wrong man, obviously. She was married to him for four years and had three kids. And returned to her parents' house with three babies in diapers. Well, I wasn't in diapers, but I was three, but my my with a newborn baby in her arms and my and the other one who was a toddler and my grandfather provided for her a house food school for the kids clothes for the kids etc nothing else there was nothing extra there was no pocket money so my mom couldn't buy us ice cream Uh, my mom couldn't work because she was not prepared to work and she had three kids so she tried to, to work for some hours in a bank or something. She would, where she, my mother was gorgeous, by the way, where she yeah. would be harassed and molested by the male establishment there. And, um, and my, for my grandfather, it was like, like a normal situation in which she was exposed. It was her fault. She had carved this unhappiness for herself because she disobeyed his orders to, when she got married. And uh, my my grandfather was a very good man, but but a very old-fashioned person, Uh, the the real, real patriarch, not a bad person. When I wrote The House of the Spirits, I have Esteban Trueva, a character sort of inspired by the patriarch that my grandfather was, but my grandfather was not a rapist and not an assassin and not a cruel person. He was just a product of his time and of his social class.
0: Was he a devout Catholic?
1: He was he was a devout Catholic, uh, and and the family was, and my mother w- was sort of excommunicated because she had separated from my father and annulled the marriage, and then when she fell in love with someone else, she was a whore. So I saw my mother, uh, with no power at all and no no freedom because she didn't have the resources. And I didn't want to have that kind of life. My mother was sick all the time because it was the only time when she got any attention.
0: She was sick because she was devastated by her circumstance.
1: And she was, she was stressed, terribly stressed. So if she got a cold, it would be pneumonia. If she, if she had a st- stomach ache, it was diverticulitis. If it, everything, it was like big. And so she, she had horrible migraines almost once or twice a week. So that also incapacitated her in many ways. And, uh, and I lived my first childhood thinking that she would die and what would happen to us, the three kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so that feeling of, of always being uh, on, on the edge of something.
0: Oh, how hard it was for her because it was really the cultural circumstances around her. She couldn't find her footing. Because at every turn, no. she was judged. No, she, she couldn't. She was judged for she leaving was, your she father. Was, she was, yeah, yeah she, she was, was judged. She was
1: young, and she was mm-hmm. beautiful. And that mm. that made her a target.
0: You know, beauty is, let's talk about beauty. Because I think you're one of the most beautiful women in the world. And oh, usually please. authors, <laughs> oh, come on, yes, you that. are. Come on, I'm telling you, you are. I'm just going to say <laughs> it, you are. It's my opinion. That's and your I, opinion. I, <laughs> I'm allowed to have it. And I, I noticed this, by the way, through the years, you know, when your books came out. Um, you were somebody to me that got better and better and better. And then I realized that you, you're in love again. You're in your third marriage. But you don't suffer fools when it comes to men. You were not going to repeat your mother's trajectory. If something wasn't working, you would get out. Now, I'm not saying this like it was easy.
1: Adriana, my mother, got out. My mother got out at a time when nobody did. There was no divorce in Chile. And and to have a marriage annulled, which was the only way out, both partners had to agree. And the condition my father gave to agree to the annulment was that he would never have to take care of his children or see them again. So and my mother had that choice. And fortunately, my grandfather was there and my grandfather said, fine, I'll take care of the kids. And he, I, we never saw him again. Uh, so my mother f- found herself at 25 with three kids, oh, no money, oh no, no education for work because she had been a señorita all her life. And, and she was able to say, yes, I'm getting out. I'm not going to put up with this.
0: So courageous. That,
1: that's incredibly courageous at that time. And in those circumstances, I wonder if I would have been able to do it and maybe not.
0: Oh, I think you're cut of her cloth.
1: No, Adriana. the great difference is that I was aware since puberty that I had to make a living, that if I was not economically independent, I would have my mother's life. And, and what was the difference between my mother and the men in the family? That they had resources. They worked. They they had independence. They didn't have to ask permission for anything because they were paying the bills. And that was so clear to me. Or maybe my mother made it clear to me. Maybe she told me that. I don't know. But it was so clear that that the only thing that I wanted when I finished high school was to get out there and work and be independent. And so I have been able to get in and out of marriages and relationships and places and and immigration and refugee and everything because I can support myself. That's a huge difference. And it's an
0: essential lesson for every girl. Absolutely. We have to survive by the labor of our own hands no matter what it is. But we must do that because without it, the patriarchy gets bigger and stronger.
1: You have to be able to make a living. And also administer and dispose of your money. Because the other thing that happens is that women have a problem with money. And very easily they delegate. And very easily they, are, they lose everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, we're impoverished by divorce.
1: Absolutely. We're,
0: impo- we're, we're completely impoverished. The men goes on, he has another family. And I, I, this is history. Yeah. You see, it's, and it's true now. How many of my friends have divorced and had to give half their pensions to these husbands that don't yeah. work? Yeah, I love that you are so clear about this. That if you have a job and a career, and you own your destiny.
1: Yeah, but also you have to own your money because look what happened to me. I married very young. I had my first kid at twenty-one, and I uh, worked all my life. I started working at barely seventeen, and I started working and I worked all my life. Sometimes two or three jobs simultaneously. And then in 1976 when we were living in exile in Venezuela I fell in love with another guy and I um and I wanted to leave and I left my husband I didn't own anything because everything that I had made we had a, a prenuptial agreement and everything that I earned went to pay for the food for school for and whatever my husband made was invested Invested in the house, in the car, in a a membership, in a club, in whatever. So all my money was spent. His money was saved. And I left with $300 after many, many years of work. And then when I came back and I started working again, as I've always worked, then I had my separate account, my money, and I learned the big lesson that if I didn't take care of myself, nobody would as my grandfather had said always the lesson Mm -hmm. of my grandfather when I was very young was don't whine don't complain nobody cares what you feel perform for yourself and take care of yourself and I ignored that (laughs) (laughs) lesson well you know you fall in love you have to fall in love but don't lose your head and don't lose your head. <laughs> no. That is
0: the greatest thing. You can fall in love, but don't lose your head. Lose your and heart
1: ju- and don't lose mm-hmm. your head. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's like I always say. Every time there's a divorce, the woman loses and half of it's gone. Whatever you accrued is half of it's gone. But you that you didn't make that mistake the second time, though.
1: Well, Adriana, if you ask men, they will say the same thing. That after a I know divorce, oh they're
0: oh they're so put upon. Yeah, when it they, comes to if, divorce. if there is a yeah. divorce,
1: they Please. have to take care of the wife and the children and whatever. So it's not fair for anybody. But what are you going to do? You are not going to stay in a relationship that is not working. That doesn't work. Absolutely, you can't.
0: Now, at every turn, it makes your status as one of our major best-selling authors, I would put you in the pantheon. You're in the top. I don't even like to say it. You're at the top. Top one. You're number one. Number (laughs) one percent. Whatever they say up there. And your life is a primer in how to survive and then thrive, because when you wrote your first novel, you didn't know if it would be a big, giant, nobody global knew. success. Nobody knew, nobody, not even the agent. Nobody. The agent sort of thought, oh, this is good, but even your agent didn't know for sure. But somewhere deep in your heart, you knew it would be.
1: No. you no, you no. You didn't no, no, think no, it no. was a rocket ship? Oh, absolutely not. How could you not? I didn't even know if it was a novel. I, I what the heck is this thing 560 pages uh, on, on the cu- on the chicken on the kitchen counter wow written in a in a portable typewriter you know at the time cut and paste was cut with scissors and paste with scotch tape <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. yes 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 <laughs> delete was a was a white liquid that you painted on yeah. Yeah. out yeah white out White, and then you had to uh, put back the, the page you deleted. You put back the page after it had dried in, in, in the typewriter. And then you would have to use a word that would fit in that space.
0: In that space. So you said, <laughs> but this is the thing I'm going to say when, when, when we go back and read you, when you did this process, It was like setting diamonds and gold because you had to retype it every time, right? Every time. To make it clean. So, (laughs) when you did it, each time you probably did a little, and you did it because to go back and study you is to study a craftsman. It is so beautifully (laughs) written. Oh, yes, but it must have been, you must have gone, oh, well, that stinks. That's going. Okay. I'm going to keep that one. But retyping and retyping and retyping a thousand
1: times. Yeah.
0: It, it makes me wonder about the books now. I think the retyping contributes to the perfection and the excellence. But you do
1: that, I, but but Adriana, you do that in the computer that you can correct forever. You couldn't be, you could, before you had to think the paragraph and think the sentence before you wrote it because you, that was it. and And now you can go through it a thousand times. You know, I'm writing... Right now, I'm writing a book, as I'm always writing a book. I, I correct constantly, constantly, all the time, so I don't know what the book is about. I need to print it at some point. When I think it's done, the first draft, I print it, and then I read it in paper, and I know what the book is about, not before. Before, it's, it's a mess. Of, of corrections and, and changes and, and things that work and maybe don't work and, and dead ends and, and crossroads, and that's what it is.
0: But the, but your characters are so vivid.
1: They carry you, don't they? The characters hold the story, thank the God. The characters hold you, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: The characters are carrying the banner, you know, uh, and, and you're there you are masterminding on the ground, on the paper, moving them around through time and space. One thing about your work, it's extremely theatrical. I can see it. I'm there in the world. It is dramatized for me. Do you love the theater?
1: I love the theater and I love a good story. I love movies. I love miniseries. I love soap operas, anything that is a story. And I I have several options for my books, for movies and, and miniseries because the producers find them very visual. That there's a lot of detail, and it's also everything is like given in, in, in because it's so visual. But that's how I think also when I think in a scene or I write, I visualize it. I try to f- think: How does it smell? What's the temperature? What's the texture? Uh, what's, what are the sounds? How does it really look? The, the shades of colors. All that is important to me to 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 really visualize what's going on. Right now, I was writing about a battle. And just imagine everything. Imagine the dead horses, the smell, the flies, the, all of that is, is essential in the text.
0: Essential to, to carry, to transport your reader into a world they've never been in before, because it's there that they find themselves in the characters.
1: That's what I love when I read. Mm-hmm. When Me I read, too. I want to be inside the head of the writer, living with those characters. What kind of books do you like?
0: Well, yours. Thank you. We're <laughs> <laughs> starting. Okay. I, I, li- I, I love epics in scope. Mm-hmm. You know, I, because of what I do here, I read a lot of things that I normally wouldn't read. Suspense and thrillers. I don't like to be scared. I don't know. Do you like to be scared? I don't like to be frightened. To be frightened to me is, you know. No, I don't uh, want that either. I, I don't want to be scared. But there's a there's a there's a way that that rolls out. Whereas with your books, I I'm, the best way I can describe it is I feel fabric when I read you. Hmm. I feel taffeta over cotton over linen and then the wool. <laughs> I just feel the places and the people and the I. I as you said, the atmospheric aspects. And I love so many things. I love biographies and autobiographies um, because there's life stories. And I think every novel ends up to be a life story, don't you think?
1: Yeah. And and if the reader can identify with one of the the characters can can be in the story, I feel so rewarded. When I get a a text message or or an email of someone who says, you copied my life. I mean, you stole my life. They feel identified, and that's great. That's wonderful.
0: I love it. You have experienced every single kind of triumph on a global level and every heartache, grief, and pain. You've had it all. Your beautiful daughter, Paola. For me, this is, this is such a personal, deeply personal she story. Is. She's gorgeous.
1: Wasn't she lovely?
0: Oh, my God. She was so beautiful, so gorgeous. Do you believe you're going to see her again?
1: You know, I, I, I don't believe in ghosts, but I believe that in an exercise of love and memory, I keep with me the people I love and they uh, are gone. Uh, let me give you an example. Let's say that I have a question. Uh, something I'm, I'm going through something in my life that I would love to have s- my mom or, or my stepfather or someone to help me through. Depending on what the situation is, I invoke the help of one of my spirits. If it's something that has to do let's say with common sense with r- with everyday life I talk to my stepfather and I know exactly what he would say to me it's not that I see him I, do, I it's not that his ghost appears but his spirit is with me because I have him inside me and I know what he would say I know what my grandfather would say when I complain stop it nobody cares
0: <laughs> so that helps but you can feel their soul's presence within your eternal soul.
1: Yeah. But also, you know, I'm surrounded by their photographs, by the memory of them. Yes. I, every yes. morning I get up, I wake up very early and I have it uh, sometimes half an hour, sometimes a full hour to just be in the darkness with my two dogs mm. in the bed and my husband, all the four of us in the bed.
0: It's very crowded in there. Very
1: crowded and it's dark and, and it's warm and and. The feeling of gratitude that I have them with me, that I have this time for me to reflect upon the, the work I'm doing, upon the day that happened, the day that will happen, the, the, the people I, I need in my life and I love. All that is so rich, so wonderful.
0: Is that your grandfather up on the shelf behind you?
1: No, that's my stepfather. That's now, your want, stepdad. Uh, that's my stepfather, Tio Ramon. Let me see if I have my, my grandfather. I want to
0: see your dad, or your or your grandfather. That's
1: my, grand, my, my stepfather over there. That's
0: your stepfather, handsome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's
1: my mother. Let me show you my mom.
0: Now, did she is that the wedding photo or is it another? Yeah. No, no, no. Let, me, let me
1: show you. My mom.
0: Okay. Perfect. I just love the photographs.
1: This is my mom.
0: Oh come on. I, I don't even know what to say. Wasn't she's she more gorgeous? beautiful than I, I. She she. You know they used to say Dolores Del Rio was the most beautiful, perfect <laughs> just, movie star. Yeah. Your mother is more beautiful. Let me see if there's uh, my oh my Isabel. The I next so many book, of
1: my grandfather at the home. The next
0: book that has to be the jacket. You've got to put your mother out in the
1: world. Uh, she's just she was lovely. I'm stunned. Yeah. Well, you know, you're uh,
0: gorgeous, so I would expect that she would be gorgeous. But that is a face. That's a f- an She's unforgettable hypnotic. face. Look. It's unforgettable, but she has the perfect sy- symmetry on her face. Those eyes are almond-shaped, the perfect aquiline nose. She's stunning.
1: Yeah, her her eyes were spinach green. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I took Roger, my new husband, to Chile to meet my parents. And when he met my By the my way, mother,
0: can we just stop for a second and say, Roger, my new husband. Is that the most beautiful sentence in the <laughs> English language? At 80. <laughs> Roger, my new husband. Okay. Yeah, he okay. sounds like a doll though. Okay, go ahead. So go ahead. He,
1: went, he went to Chile and met my mom. And, and my mama, she was 95, 96 when she, he met her. And uh, he said, Panchita, you're so beautiful. And uh, she said, pointing to my stepfather, he has never told me that. And and Tio Ramon, Tio Ramon said I saw her first. You know that macho thing, that patriarchal yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, but my mother was my mother wasn't aware of a beauty until very late in life because it was not a value in my family. In my family, um, what counted was the mind, intellect.
0: And ev- and evidently moral. Code yeah. was huge in your family. Huge, Those two
1: things.
0: Huge, huge. Huge. Yeah. Her moral code. Yeah. But beauty, you remember Anita Luce and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? Yeah. And in that book she says, Why can't a woman's beauty be just like a man's business sense? Or if he's a farmer, the way he does a fee, you know, she says it much better than I'm saying it right now. But beauty is just another tool in your arsenal as a woman.
1: Yeah. It's an important tool. It's a very important tool in the world we live. Isn't it though? In the world we live, it it is, unfortunately, but that's the way it is. It's a tool. It's a tool. The problem with beauty is that somebody, somebody, somewhere decides what the standards are.
0: I know. Uh, There
1: is a certain natural standard, which is balance, harmony. Let's say that symmetry. I'm I'm looking at it right now in your face. Symmetry, let's say. But, gorgeous, but the the standards of that you have to be tall and thin and white and all that is artificial, because you might find a woman in her forties that is overweight that is that has dark skin and is gorgeous, because there is something extraordinary in her. We see them all the time through the foundation, women who have been through hell, who have not a drop of makeup on, who are desperate in me and, and you can see the beauty
0: they glow they glow They glow that's because their souls are on fire they're trying to find a better way of life
1: let's talk about love
0: let's talk about
1: love yeah
0: <laughs> i know love and sex those are your favorite topics it's well, always sex used to be yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> can
0: i tell you something everything counts when it comes to sex after 50 everything <laughs> everything if he touches you, if, if he pats your hand, sex, I call it sex. If he gives you a hug, that's sex, you kiss,
1: it's sex. <laughs> good. Everything's sex. Good. Now, good. do you feel that way? At my age, what counts is kindness and good manners. Amen. And, and a sense of humor helps too.
0: Yeah. Kindness, good manners. And I have a feeling that Roger puts you on a pedestal.
1: Well, he took the risk of being with me which is a big risk because he was a lawyer on the other end of the continent in New York, was born in New York, worked in New York all his life, lived there all his life. For him, California is like Africa. And really, it's like, I mean, an unknown territory completely. So he had never been in California. And and so he heard me on the radio and reached out to me. And after five months of emailing me morning and night, every single day, we finally met. And he proposed in in two days. He said- In let's two get, days. Two days, let's get married. When he was taking me to the airport. And I said, are you kidding me? Why would he get, get married? We're not going to have babies or something. What are you talking about? <laughs> I am 76 years old. And he said- he wanted absolutely to get married. I said, no, but we can be lovers. So you come to California to meet me whenever you want, and I'll be there. And so he started coming, but it's it's a very long trip, six hours, just the plane, plus the airports and everything else. And you're exhausted the day you get there. Yeah, then, to come yeah. for a weekend didn't make any sense. So he tried for like a year of this. Finally, he sold his house, gave away everything he owned, and moved to my house with two bikes, his clothes, and a collection of crystal glasses. Go figure, why the crystal glasses? Why? Why? Were they his mothers?
0: Maybe they were his mothers. He just liked them?
1: Yeah, I I have no idea. I said, Roger, I have glasses. But he brought them anyhow. So now we have a lot of glasses at home. But Isabel, (laughs) this is where you're a genius. (laughs) You didn't move to him. Why would I move move to to him? him. Are you
0: crazy? Okay, okay. Tell me why you wouldn't move to him. Because
1: I had a life with my son, with my dogs, with my house in California, and he lived like a somber old widower in a sprawling ranch house in the middle of nowhere. Forget it. Who wants that life? Forget it.
0: Forget it. I get it. And the four seasons and you'd be shoveling snow and raking leaves and you don't (laughs) need that either. California (laughs) has its
1: benefits. I love California. Oh, yeah. I think it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. So he eventually moved and we started living together and he would ever so often bring up the thing about getting married and I would always sort of make fun of it until one day my son who is wise beyond his years said, mom. Have you noticed that every time Roger brings up the thing about marriage, you make fun of him? How would you feel if it was the other way around? That marriage was important for you and he would make some joke about it. You wouldn't feel good. Mm. And I thought he's right. But what really was the final straw was that his um, granddaughter, who was seven at the time, Anna, went to the librarian in her school and said, Miss, have you heard of Isabella Allende? And the librarian said, "Yeah, I might have read one of her books." And the girl said, after a pause, "She's sleeping with my grandfather." Oh
0: my God. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. Yeah, that's, So you can't the mouth of babes. That is perfect. Yeah. It's so perfect. so then you were shamed. Yeah, you you said, were
1: shamed. That's it, said Roger. This is a bad example for the kids. That is the best story I have ever heard.
0: Okay. So then then again, we go back to that moral thing in your family. You yeah. said, okay, make me an honest woman, as they used to say in the of old course, movies. right? course, of course. Oh, wow. Isabel, you are, well, you're you're more than I could have ever dreamed of. (laughs) I I, I, I mean, listen, I've loved you forever. Thank you. And can I tell you, the people that read you and love you, oh, there's millions and millions and millions of people around the world. And that has to make you feel loved. Does
1: it? Let me me tell you when I felt it. Mm. Books have a way of going away, and you cannot trace their journey. You don't know who is going to pick them up, read them, or how the people are going to react. You cannot tell the reader what to feel or think. So they are gone. And all the celebrity stuff happens in the periphery, far away, when it doesn't affect your life at all. However, when I wrote Paula, this was before the internet, and the book was published, I started getting letters. Adriana, boxes and boxes of letters that came from all over the world, sometimes in languages that I I couldn't even read the alphabet. And these letters were about people who felt connected to me because they had losses in their lives. It it, it didn't have to be the death of a child. It could be divorce. It could be the death of a parent. It could be bankruptcy. It could be a fatal illness or or, or pain or whatever. And then I realized finally for the first time that there were people out there reading my books and connecting to me and and were willing to find an address to to mail a letter for me. Uh, These letters, some of them were so incredibly wonderful that some publishers in Europe published a collection of them, of the letters, because they were so extraordinary. I love that. So that's the moment when I felt that I was connected to, to the world, to a lot of people. And that is a fantastic feeling.
0: Oh, it's all about connection, isn't connection. it? Connection. Even talking to you today, I feel infused. Yeah, it's a connection. Your, with your connection. sense of possibility. Oh, and, your, and and Roger's granddaughter. That is hilarious. <laughs> well, everybody is reading The Wind Knows My Name, but I, I, I tell everybody to go back and read the entire canon because they're just, they're gems. They're all Thank jewels. You. Thank you. Glittering jewels. And you are the greatest jewel of all. Thank you so and much. I'm thrilled Allende. to meet you here. I'm thrilled to meet you here. And God bless you and many, many years of health and happiness. You deserve it.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Isabel Allende, for your humor, your wisdom, your courage, your moxie, and that spark that keeps us as readers entertained and enlightened. I had so much fun talking with Isabel. Now, a few updates before I go. If you liked this episode, please make sure you rate and review the podcast. If you didn't like it, tell us what you'd like to hear. We want to continue to bring you the best authors, luminaries, and minds of our time. And of course, the best conversations. Your comments help make this happen. Follow us always for updates on Instagram at the You Are What You Read podcast. And finally, thank you for listening and always, always thank you for reading.